You can take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter and chapter number 2. Now, we've been going through this bit by bit, and I've said this before, but historically, this epistle has been written to believers that were undergoing some immense persecution. But I think more importantly, the backdrop for at least the verses or the, or the texts that we've been going through, um, all of them have been pointing us towards the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. Um, all of them, just com- oh, the whole time, they just go back there. You know, they remind us about the significance of the gospel, and not only for unbelievers, but for believers also. You know, the gospel is of great significance for us after we've got uh, after we've been saved. And there's a lot of application there that we can do. Now, pick, we picked up this series from verse 13. You know, we, we ended off last year just before that. But just a few weeks ago, we started in verse 13 and between there, or chapter 1 and verse 13. And between there and verse 16, Peter tells us not to go back to all the sins that we've been committing before we got saved but rather we should be living holy lives. And we've heard a little bit about that during this morning Bible study as well. He says in verse 15 that we should be holy in all manner of conversation. That means that we should be holy in everything that we do. Why? Well, because we have been saved. If you've been saved, you should be living a holy life. He also tells us to fix our hope on the grace that we will receive one day, on that day when the Lord Jesus comes back. And folks, that's part and parcel of the gospel, is that we're saved and we'll be, we will be safe when he comes back and he'll take us home with him. Um, in chapter 1 and verse 17 to 21, Peter reminds us of how we were saved. He says that we were saved not by corruptible things, such as silver and gold, you know, that's, that's money. And boy, I think it'll do us good to remember we were not saved by money, folks. We were not redeemed or, or, or bought by money. So there's no use actually putting your trust in money, as many of us do. You know, money is not able to save us. It never was. It, 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 we were not redeemed by it, and it is not able to redeem us. We were redeemed, Peter says here, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And folks, that is something that money is not able to buy. There, there is simply nothing more precious in the entire universe than the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what it took to redeem us. Once again, that's also the gospel. And Peter then continued from verse 22 to 25 Uh, in in chapter 1, and he he continued to exhort us to love one another fervently because our souls have been purified when we were born again, he says, by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God when we obeyed the gospel, which is contained within the Word of God, of course. And folks, that's also a very practical application of the gospel, isn't it? You know, we, we know how to love because he first loved us. God proved his love to us in that he sent his son to die on our behalf. So, because of that, let's now love each other fervently. Okay, once again, that goes back to the gospel. And then last week we looked at uh, chapter 2 here of 1 Peter. 
uh, verses 1 to 3, where Peter continues this thought of the incorruptible, living, and abiding Word of God. And he says that we should lay aside all of the sin that has been plaguing our lives and that we should start to desire this sincere milk of the Word, he says. You know, the same way that a baby actually desires its, a newborn baby desires its mother's milk so that we can grow thereby, he says, so that we can grow in our faith. In verse 3 here of, of chapter 2, he ends off with this exhortation. You can read it with me. He says, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And in the context, it, it obviously refers to, uh, firstly, to the grace of the Lord that we tasted that moment that we got saved. Okay, that's, that's firstly it. Um, but then it also extends to all other forms of grace that the, that the Lord has been bestowing upon us since we got saved. God's grace didn't stop at that moment of salvation, folks. That's why we're singing songs such as, count your blessings, name them one by one, and you will see what the Lord has done for you. That is great, and that's, that is the gospel. You see how every, every part of what we've been looking at constantly points us back towards the gospel. And Peter is very clear in reminding the readers of this epistle that they were saved when they believed the gospel. And then he also reminds them of how it affects their daily lives. You know, And Peter is not alone in applying the gospel to our daily lives as Christians. The New Testament is actually full of instructions on how we should be living in the light of the fact that we have been saved by God. Folks, the gospel is not only something that we, that we preach so that somebody can get saved. Of course we preach it so that somebody can get saved. You know? We know that that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That's Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. But then we also study the ways that the, that the truth of the gospel should be affecting our lives now that we have been saved. Not only at church, but also at home and at the workplace, and when you are driving, and at a restaurant, or maybe when you're sick, maybe when you're going through a hard time, when you're among your friends, and when you are alone. The gospel should affect every single part of your life, because that is how you got life. It is through the gospel. It is through faith in the message of the gospel that we are adopted as children of the living, holy, and true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And we can call him Father now. And he calls us his sons, his children. And with that then as the backdrop, we come to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, where we will start today. But before we dive into each verse individually here, and, and maybe I don't think we'll go through everyone individually, um, let's just read through this passage starting in verse 4. Okay, sorry, let's start at verse 3 just to get the context. <laughs> if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, 
and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for being with us again today. Lord Jesus, we... We thank you that, you that you made salvation possible and freely available. Lord, we thank you for everything that that means, that it's not only the salvation of our souls, not only that we won't be going to hell, Lord, but that we will see you one day and that you are walking with us every step of this way, that you are running this race with us, Lord. You're holding our hands. Lord, it's such an immense privilege to be in your family. And so, Lord, I ask that you will please guide us today as we go through your word. Will you please fill us with your spirit? Open up our ears, Lord. Help us to leave all the distractions at home and to focus on you, to keep our eyes fixed on you alone. We praise your name for being with us, Lord, and we thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. Amen. All right, let's start in verse 4 again. I'll just read the first three words there. He says, to whom coming? To whom coming? Folks, this is an amazing concept that we find or that we receive as New Testament believers. You know, at first glance, these three words look as if Peter is talking about when we came to Jesus to be saved. And yes, that is certainly true. And it is included in this phrase that we have here. Folks, coming to Jesus begins at that moment that you received your salvation. When you, that moment that you p- placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone to be saved. And Jesus talked about men coming to him at, at different points of his earthly ministry. For instance, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a great invitation, isn't it? Oh, that's great. Jesus openly invites everyone to, uh, who are laboring under the law and are weighed down by their inability to keep the law and to stop sinning to come to him. And he says they will find rest in him. That rest that he is talking about is peace of your conscience. It is a peace in your soul that, that can only be found in this divine grace of God, when it is applied to you, when you come to Christ for your salvation. And folks, I want to be clear, this invitation from the Lord stands to this day. It stands to this day and it is there for you. Let's turn our Bibles to, keep your place here, let's turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And we'll read there two verses from here. (laughs) This makes me think of something I heard this week. I heard that there's a preacher, and, you know, most preachers stand here with notes. And it it, it does happen. Even when leading songs, it, it really does happen that you just, all of a sudden, you lose your place. It's just... 
what was I just saying? You're not even listening to your own sermon, it seems, you know. And he says that when that happens, he tells the congregations, okay, turn to Zephaniah chapter 2. And then that buys him time. <laughs> because everybody's like, where's Zephaniah? That's actually a book in the Bible, by the way. But everybody's like, where's that? Is it before, after, New Testament, Old Testament? And that, that buys him time to find his place. So that, I, I just love that. So I'll, I'll be doing that in the future, and you'll never know when I do that. <laughs> I'll be sneaky. Anyway, um, verse 37. John chapter 7 and verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Folks, this thirst, and I think it's clear that this thirst that Jesus is talking about is not that natural kind of thirst that you can quench with a drink of water. It's not that thing. It is a, it is a spiritual kind of thirst. It is a, a thirst for salvation. It is a thirst to get your sins cleared away, to get that conscience cleared, like I said earlier, and to be made right with God. That's the kind of thirst. You know, you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus told, he met a woman of Samaria there at Jacob's well. And he told her that whosoever is thirsty and drinks of the water of this well will thirst again. And that's true. That's the natural thirst, isn't it? You know, you take a drink and then after a little while you're thirsty again. You take another drink and, and the cycle continues. That's the natural thirst. You know, it especially happens in this, you know, Botma read that letter from Chad Branch. It's Branch, by the way, not Branch. But um, <laughs> he, uh, where, where he mentioned, you know, they had a little bit of a cool time, but otherwise they've got three deserts meeting there in Kimberley, and it's just hot. Yes, you're thirsty all the time. <laughs> all right. But here in verse 37 that we read here, Jesus invites everyone. You will see there that he says there, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, if any man thirst, so if he invites anybody to come to him and to drink if they have that spiritual thirst. In John chapter 4 and verse 14, he said to that woman at the well the following, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That sounds very much like what we had here in verse 38. Read verse 38 again uh, in chapter 7. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's the same idea that we have here between these two things. You know, if you come to Jesus... He will satisfy your thirst. And He won't only satisfy it. You will have rivers of living water coming out of you. You will have more than enough. More than enough. And He will give you rest. Folks, He will save you. He will give you that peace. And so there is, there is a sense here. You can come back to First Peter chapter 2. There is a sense here of what Peter is talking about coming to Him, that it is a past event. You know, but that is not the full meaning of what we have here in verse 4. When he says, to whom coming, he's talking about something that is continual. You, will, you see that in the word coming. My English grammar is horrible, but I know at least that. <laughs> if you say coming, that means it's something that's continuing. 
He's talking about coming to Christ and remaining in Him. Now that obviously starts at that moment of salvation, like, like we said, so that is included in this verse, but it also talks about remaining in Christ after you got saved, continually coming to Him. It's the same type of thing that, that John talks about in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24, where he says this, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. So he says, if you keep Jesus' commandments, he dwells in you, and you, and he dwells... Well, yeah, you see, we both dwell in each other. <laughs> All right, let's just say it that way. I sound like a politician, don't I? Well, like one of those YouTube clips. But <laughs> and he says, uh, uh, following that, he says, And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So the idea is that we come to him and we stay in his presence to have perfect fellowship with him and, and to stay near him, to draw, draw near to him. Folks, this is an immense privilege that we have as New Testament believers to, to enjoy today. That's what we can do. You know, previously in the Old Testament times, the privilege of drawing near to God was, was only reserved for the priests. The common man could not do that. It was only reserved for them. Back in those days, if they wanted to draw near to God, they had to go to some altar or they had to travel all the way to Jerusalem to be in the temple and that's when you're close to God because that is where God made himself available to them. Right there. But you will remember that after Jesus' death, that veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom and that symbolized that God would not be found in that place anymore. We can now freely come to him through Jesus whenever we want to and wherever we want to. It doesn't really matter. So to put this in other words, when Peter says here, to whom coming, he is talking about that continual movement towards intimate fellowship with Jesus. It's a continual process, folks. It's a continual process of drawing near to him. And that is something that every believer should be doing throughout his entire life. When you think you're close to him, you can always get closer and closer and closer. So let's continue with verse 4. He says, To whom coming as unto a living stone. Now that's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Calling Jesus a stone. And it is somewhat of a, of a paradox that we find here because... Stones are not really known for being alive, <laughs> are they? You know, uh, they have a tendency to stay exactly there where you left them. And they, they don't need food. They, they don't need somebody to care for them. They're just stones. And the type of stone that, that Peter is talking about here is not just any old stone that you can pick up, you know, next to the road or whatever. It is a stone, a special stone, that the workmen would saw down and, and chisel it down to make it the exact size that they need and it's a, it's, it fits perfectly with the rest of the stones in these massive buildings that they built with these massive stones. That's how they built back then. You know, the, These massive stones would be so heavy uh, that they didn't even need cement. They would just place these massive stones next to each other with no gaps in between them and it just stays like that for thousands of years. You know, A few years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Egypt and we saw some of these massive buildings, or at least what's left of them, um, that they built in these ancient times. Uh, I can remember it was there by the Great Pyramids, and the, there was this one 
uh, some sort of temple of some sort of idol, but that doesn't really matter. You know, but I was really impressed by these huge stones that were placed one on top of another to form these walls. Folks, it's amazing to see. It's, it's, it's just massive. And they would fit so perfectly together. You can't even take a sheet of paper and insert it there in between these rocks or these stones. It's, it's absolutely amazing, the craftsmanship that goes into that. And that is the kind of stone that Peter is talking about here. One that is perfectly shaped for its intended purpose. But the stone that he is talking about here is not any old stone. Like I said, this stone is alive. It's because this stone is Jesus, of course, and Jesus is alive. Paul tells us in First Corinthians chapter ten and verse four that Jesus is that spiritual rock that the Israelites had to drink from in the wilderness to satisfy their thirst, and He is alive. Because he rose again from the dead. And because of that, he gives life to anybody who comes to him. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45, Paul says this. He says, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, Jesus is that last Adam that he's talking about. He is the one that gives us life. He's made a quickening spirit. A quickening spirit is something, a spirit that gives life. That's what it is, and, and that, that is what Jesus is. He's made a quickening spirit. Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So anybody that comes to this living stone in faith, well, they receive life. And since his life is eternal, then that is the same quality of life that we receive when we go to him. We get eternal life. Now, you may think that it is strange that Peter is referring to Jesus as a stone, but that is because uh, of of the three prophecies that he actually quotes from the Old Testament in this piece that we read today. Uh, There are three of them. And we look at those shortly, but, but it's important to know that everything in this text should be understood in the light of those prophecies. Uh, that he's mentioning, but we'll get to them now. Let's, let's just continue with verse 4. He says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You see the three terms there describing um, this stone? Look at, look at it again uh, at the end of verse 4, or the middle of verse 4. He says, Disallowed indeed of men. That means, that's the same as saying rejected of men. It's exactly the same word, rejected of men but chosen of God and precious. So the stone was rejected by men, but chosen by God and he's precious. All of these terms are taken from these Old Testament prophecies that uh, that we find there. When he says that Jesus was disallowed or or, or rejected of men, he's he's taking that from Psalms chapter 118 and verse 22. Uh, which he quotes here in verse 7. I think let's turn to Psalms. Keep your place here. Let's turn to Psalms 118. Talking about, he's saying it, the stone which the builders refused, same term once again, rejected. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We can come back to First Peter chapter 2. That is what I wanted you to see there. He's quoting this in verse 7. You can see it there in verse 7. Unto you therefore which, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, and that's where he starts his quote, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So the stone that the builders rejected becomes this head of the corner, the, the cornerstone. You can turn to Matthew chapter 21 quickly. Once again, keep your place in... in First Peter. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus tells a parable about a man owning a vineyard. And he rents out this vineyard to a bunch of husbandmen uh, so that they could take care of it while he's traveling to a faraway country. And while all of this is, uh, or after a while rather, he s- the owner of the vineyard sends some of his servants to go and check if there are any fruit that he can get from it. And when the husbandmen, or when the servants approached the husbandmen to ask them about this, well, they killed some of them and beat up some, some of the others. And then a the second time, the, the owner of the vineyard sent more servants, and the same thing happened there. And then the last time, the, the owner thought that, okay, well, I'll send my son. Maybe if they see my son, then they will have some sort of reverence for him. They will have some sort of respect because he's my son. And when the husbandmen saw that it, it was his son, they took him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They killed him. And Jesus likened the son of the, or Jesus is likened to the son of this vineyard owner. And he, Jesus also likened the, the son of this vineyard owner to that stone that we fo- found in Psalms chapter 118. Look here, you've got Matthew 21. Let's look at verse 42. This is right after Jesus uh, told them this parable. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, of course, Jesus was that rejected stone. You can see that here. And, and the builders that we read about, or that we read about in Psalm chapter 118, that rejected the stone... They are the same people that are portrayed by the husbandmen of this, or the husbandmen of the vineyard, of, of this parable that Jesus said. And they were the Jewish leaders of the time. That, that's what you find in this parable. And if you know anything about the Bible and about the life of Christ, then you will know that the Jew, Jewish leaders outright rejected Jesus. Now, of course, there were some exceptions, but mostly they rejected Jesus. They hated him, insomuch that they were finally able to, to have him killed, tortured to death. Okay, you can come back to First Peter chapter 2. So that is rejected of men. and Now the terms chosen of God and precious comes from, from the prophecy that Peter quotes in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. You can read verse 6 with me. And that comes from Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Look at verse 6. He says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone. Sion is just another name for Jerusalem. All right? Behold, I lay in Sion a, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So let me first explain what this chief cornerstone actually is. Um, so that, that will also help you to understand this picture that Peter is giving us. 
And it's actually very interesting. You know, when, when the people back then wanted to build a building, they wanted the stones to fit perfectly together, like I explained earlier. So the most important stone was this chief cornerstone because this stone would actually set the lines for the entire building. You know, the, the stone was used like a plumb line in every direction. You know, if any of the angles of this stone was off, then the whole building would be skewed. Or maybe, you know, if it was a vertical line, then the building would collapse under its own weight. So this was a very important stone. All of the angles of, this, of the entire building would be set according to this one chief cornerstone. Every other stone had to fall in line with this one cornerstone. So the picture that we have here is that the, the religious leaders of the Jews wanted to participate in the building of God's spiritual temple. And so they needed a cornerstone, of course, because that's how they did it. And when Jesus came along, they carefully examined him. You know, they, they looked at him from every angle, made sure everything fits within their religious system. And they evaluated him to see if he was fit to be their Messiah, to be their cornerstone, the cornerstone of God's spiritual kingdom. And they concluded at the end that he was not fit to be that cornerstone, so they rejected him. He didn't look the way that they thought that the Messiah would look. You know, um, they thought that Jesus would come or the Messiah would come as a conquering king and that he would free them from their Roman oppressors and that, that he would give the Jews their land back. That's what they were expecting, but instead he was born in a stable. That doesn't sound very kingly, does it? Or very royal. He lived as a poor man. You know, Jesus didn't conquer anything as far as they were concerned. Nothing. He made himself equal with God, so that's blasphemy. And he rebuked them for their religious systems. And in the end, he died on a cross. And he was too weak to let himself down from that cross even. That's from their perspective. But do you know what God thought about him? Look at verse 4. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. So God also examined him. He took out his perfect measuring instruments and he measured Jesus and said that, well, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is God's elect. He's, he's chosen by God. God looked at him and he concluded that Jesus was perfect to be that cornerstone. All the angles lined up. There were no, no imperfections in him. And finally, God raised him up from the dead and he made him a living stone. And so God built his church on this cornerstone. And the gates of hell, Jesus said, uh, will not prevail over it. Men did indeed reject him. You know, um, he was in the world, John tells us in John chapter 1, and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That is perhaps the saddest words in the whole Bible, at least for me. You know, they rejected him, and they still reject him today. The world bring their own measuring instruments to the table to see if he is fit to be their cornerstone. And then they reject him for the same reasons that the religious leaders rejected him for 2,000 years ago. And some of you today are doing the exact same thing. 
So you say, well, how do I reject him? Well, by not putting your faith and trust in him to be saved. You know, Jesus was clear about this. He said that if you are not for him, you are against him. That's the same message in Romans chapter 5. You know, um, Paul talks there about, or he talks to people that are saved, but he says previously you were the enemies of God. You were against him. And so if you do not obey the gospel, then you are rejecting him. You are rejecting him. Because you measure him with your own made-up, crooked measuring instruments. And when you are done, then you conclude that, well, he's not fit to be your cornerstone, and so you reject him, and you throw him away. Yes, I know, maybe those words never came out of your mouth, but that is what you are doing. Look at verse 7, 1 Peter 2 and verse 7. He says there, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. And folks, that's true, isn't it? He is precious. There is nobody more precious than Jesus. He is the object of our affection because He has paid the ultimate price for us when we didn't deserve it. He is precious. Oh, He's precious. Look at verse 7 again. Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So you may ask, well, what, what are they, these people disobedient of? Well, their unbelief is their disobedience. Because the call of the gospel to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done, it is actually a command from God. It's a command from your Creator. And everyone who does not believe are disobedient. And to them, Jesus becomes, like, like he says here, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He is like the, that stone that you find in the middle of the road, you know, that a, a traveler would, would walk if he doesn't look, you know, he would stumble on that thing and fall. Folks, Jesus is either the means to salvation to everyone that believes the gospel, or he is the means to judgment to everyone that rejects the gospel. There is no middle ground. None. Peter ends of verse, verse 8 by saying, Whereunto also they were appointed. Now I just want to clear up some possible confusion that may come on this point. Peter is not saying here that these people were appointed to be disobedient. You know? God didn't somehow cause them to be, to be disobedient. He didn't plan and say, okay, Yanni will be disobedient, Debojo will not. And he didn't do that. He doesn't have a list like that. All right? he didn't, he, or rather, he doesn't cause that. What Peter is saying here is that those who are unbelieving and who are disobedient to the call of the gospel, they are appointed to damnation. It's the same way as those who are actually obedient to the gospel are appointed to salvation. Okay? It just means that, well, you've chosen your destiny, basically, if I can put it that way. It's like what Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 18. He said, he that believeth on him, okay, that's Jesus, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's condemned already, because he does not believe. Now there's one other thing that caught my eye this morning while I was going through my notes. 
And that's in verse 7. I want to show you this. He says, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. He says, the same is made the head of the corner. So, folks, it does not matter what your estimation of Christ is. It really doesn't. You need to conform to his standard. He's the chief cornerstone. He sets the lines. He sets the angles. He's the chief cornerstone. You need to conform to him. You need to do it your way. Oh, sorry, his way, and not do it your way. Because that's what we want to do, isn't it? That's what we want to do. We want to have it our way. We come to church on our terms. We do whatever he wants to on our terms. Many people have told me before, well, they, not in exactly these words, but it comes, boils down to, well, I just love my sin too much. I don't, I don't want Christ right now. I'll, I'll take him later. That's not how it works, folks. That's not how it works. This is a command from your God, whether you believe in him or not. He is your God. He is your creator. And he is your judge. And so in conclusion, <laughs> I would like to ask those who have not yet obeyed the call of the gospel, please, humble yourself today. Be real with yourself. Be real. Be true. Humble yourself. Put your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus. Not in yourself. Because, folks, for, for everybody and for anybody, that is the way to salvation. There is no other way. It doesn't matter what other religious system there is out there. It doesn't matter what you think. That is the only way that he gave us to be saved. And it's a wonderful way. It is, it's magnificent. And folks, if you are saved today, then continue to draw near to the Lord. Make that an effort. It's an, it's an act that you do. Draw near to the Lord. Because it's such an amazing privilege that we can do that. I think we sometimes take that for granted. It's so easily, it was so easy to quickly say a prayer or you know, do this or that, or I don't feel like it right now or whatever. Folks, it's a privilege. It is such a privilege to be able to draw near to God, to boldly come to the throne of grace. Let's take advantage of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the provision you made. Lord, for all the privileges that we can have because you have, um, you have saved us. Lord, it, it is so wonderful to be able to know that we are children of God if we are saved, Lord, that, that our salvation is safe and secure in you. Our destiny is safe and secure. And it really doesn't matter what goes on down here around us, Lord, with all the problems and the, and the fears and whatever. Lord, we can look forward to seeing you one day in your glory. That's, that's just going to be amazing. Lord, I want to ask that you will please work in those people's hearts who are not saved yet today. Lord, will you... Oh, Lord, please draw them to you. Will you please let them run to you because there is no other way and because you've been so kind and so loving and so wonderful to make the, to make the ultimate sacrifice for us, Lord. 
which we don't deserve. Oh Lord, please, will you save them? Lord, for those of us that are saved, will you please remind us? Lord, help us not to get so busy with the things of the world that the cares of this world will just drown out the word, Lord. Lord, please remind us and, and help us to, to put you first, to come to you first before we do anything else. We praise your name, Lord, that you are so gracious, that you are so long-suffering towards us. And will, will you please be with us the rest of this day and keep on working in us, make us more like Christ, Lord. Sanctify us day by day. We praise your name. Amen.